I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Acts chapters 18 through 20. In Acts chapter 18, Paul goes to Corinth, beginning of verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth, and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy, with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, and came unto them. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them, and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the Spirit, and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment, and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles." And he departed thence, and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. For I have much people in this city." And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. And when Gallio was the deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul, and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was now about to open his mouth, Gallio said unto the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, O ye Jews, reason would that I should bear with you. But if it be a question of words and names and of your law, look ye to it, for I will be no judge of such matters. And he drave them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. And Gallio cared for none of those things. Well, in this passage, Paul leaves Athens and arrives in Corinth. There he hitches up with Aquila and Priscilla, who were tent makers like himself, and stays in Corinth for about a year and a half. During the reign of Emperor Claudius, the Jews had been asked to leave Rome. That's how this couple happened to settle in Corinth. Silas and Timothy rejoin Paul in verse 5. Paul had left them in Berea prior to going to Athens back in Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 15. There was apparently a shift in Paul's preaching to these Jewish Corinthians after Silas and Timothy arrive when you look closely at verses 4 and 5. After their arrival, Paul puts the pieces together that he had apparently been laying down in the weeks prior to their arrival by declaring that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Paul continued to preach in the synagogue every Sabbath, resulting in the salvation of many, including the ruler of the synagogue, Crispus. You may recall in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, that Paul refers to Crispus as one who was baptized by Paul himself. Toward the end of his stay in Corinth, the Jewish leaders attempted to take Paul to Roman court for trial. But when Gallio, the proconsul of the province, realized that this was a dispute over the application of the Jewish doctrine, 
by the way, Christianity was recognized by Rome as a sect of Judaism. Well, when he realized that this was an application of Jewish doctrine according to Roman law, he dismissed the case, saying that it was no concern of his. But wait, there's more. When the Greeks saw that the case was dismissed, they took this opportunity to do a little bit of Jew bashing. They took Sosthenes, who was the new ruler of the synagogue, I guess they must have held him accountable for the charges against Paul, and they beat Sosthenes. Now, that's a change. Usually, Paul gets the beating. Well, forget about preaching in the synagogue any longer, Paul. However, though it's not conclusive that it's the same person, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 does make reference to Sosthenes, our brother. Perhaps the new ruler of the synagogue subsequently got saved also. Incidentally, Paul really stirred things up back at the synagogue at Corinth when in verse 6 he declared, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean from henceforth. I will go unto the Gentiles. This is not the first time Paul used this leverage on Jewish antagonists. He had actually made a similar statement to the Jews back in Antioch in Acts chapter 13, verse 46, after a similar role fomented by Jewish leaders during Paul's first missionary journey. Isn't it ironic that Gentiles heard the gospel message from Paul as a result of the antagonistic rejection of the gospel by the Jews themselves? And then it's back to Antioch in chapter 18, beginning with verse 18. Verse 18, And Paul after this tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren, and sailed thence into Syria, and with them Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Kincrii, for he had a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they desired him to tarry longer time with them, he considered not, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you, if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and saluted the church, he went down to Antioch. Well, as things had heated up in Corinth, it's time to head back to Syria, Antioch specifically. Note that Paul was finishing up on a Nazarite vow here. This vow had to be completed in uh, Jerusalem. And so that's where he's headed. There the hair would be presented to God and sacrifices offered according to Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 22. It's important to once again emphasize that Christianity was regarded by the Roman Empire as a sect of Judaism during this period of time. Paul's looking for opportunities to take the gospel message to Jews and Gentiles alike. Therefore, it was quite natural for Paul to engage in the Nazarite ritual in the process of transitioning Jewish thought from Judaism to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul summarizes his philosophy regarding this incident in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19-20. Here's what he says there. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews to them that are under the law, as under the law that I might gain them that are under the law. Paul didn't see any difficulty whatsoever in practicing those traditional rituals that did not compromise the gospel message, but he did it in order to win Jews to Jesus Christ as Savior. These verses draw to a conclusion Paul's second missionary journey. There's a map on the page here in the written notes of BibleTrack.org that you can look and see the, the trip that he made on the second missionary journey. We see here that after leaving Corinth, he passed through 
Cenchreae, sailed over to Ephesus, and then he sailed down to Jerusalem's port of Caesarea. From there we see in verse 22, it says this, And when he had landed in Caesarea and gone up and saluted the church, he went down to Antioch. The phrase gone up is the manner in which they referred to going to Jerusalem, regardless of its geographical direction. The phrase saluted the church undoubtedly refers to the church at Jerusalem. We do know from verse 21 that Paul was compelled to go to Jerusalem to complete his Nazarite vow. After completing his business in Jerusalem, he went down to Antioch. In Old and New Testament terminology, leaving Jerusalem to anywhere in any direction was always going down. From Antioch in verse 23, Paul embarks upon his third missionary journey. Incidentally, we see that Priscilla and Aquila accompanied Paul on a portion of this trip, but remained in Ephesus after Paul departed for Jerusalem. Their presence in Ephesus plays a role in the education of Apollos in the verses that follow. Then there was Apollos, and let's talk about him a little bit, in chapter 18, beginning with verse 23 down through verse 28. And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. And a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man, and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them much which had believed through grace. For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the Scriptures that Jesus was Christ." Now, verse 23 here marks the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey, which, by the way, begins from Antioch in Syria. In verse 24, we find the first mention of Apollos. He was an eloquent man with some learning gaps when it came to the Messiah. He actually only knew of the baptism of John. You recall in the preceding verses that Paul had left Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus as he departed for Jerusalem. It's these two who take on the mission of educating Apollos regarding the whole story of Jesus. Apollos departed Ephesus prior to Paul's arrival. Now, news traveled a little slowly back then. It's been over 20 years since the day of Pentecost, but Apollos knew nothing of any of that. As a matter of fact, since the baptism of John preceded the entire earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, he was likely ignorant of that as well. However, the trip from Jerusalem to Ephesus was over a thousand miles by land or 600 miles across the Mediterranean Sea. Word just traveled very slowly about anything over that long of a distance. Paul had just left Ephesus on his way to Antioch. After Apollos was brought up to speed on Jesus and his Messiahship, including the death, burial, and resurrection, and the fulfillment of Old Testament messianic prophecy, he became a mighty champion and preached Jesus to the Jews. As a matter of fact, Apollos became a well-respected teacher in Corinth. He receives mention in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, chapter 3, verses 4 through 6 and 22, and also chapter 4, verse 6, and chapter 16, verse 12. Then we find Paul teaching in Ephesus, beginning in chapter 19, verse 1. 
And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about twelve. And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened and believed not, and spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Well, here in Ephesus, Paul finds some other people similar to Apollos who haven't been updated in a very long time. I mean, a really, really long time. Like Apollos, they're only familiar with the preaching and baptizing of John the Baptist. As a matter of fact, perhaps even Apollos taught those people. It doesn't actually say here that they were not familiar with the ministry of Christ himself, but it is implied. After Paul preaches to them, they're baptized, and afterward they duplicate the miracles of the day of Pentecost. Now, this incident stands alone as unique. People discovered 20 years after the establishment of the church, and these people are totally unfamiliar with those events. Look at verse 10. It says, And this continued by the space of two years. So that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Paul stayed in this part of Asia Minor and did a thorough job of evangelizing this part of the world, which is today known as Turkey. This passage has come to be the foundation, along with some others, for a second blessing doctrine prevalent in charismatic and Pentecostal churches. To them, the passage provides the foundation for a doctrine that the Holy Spirit is not necessarily received by a believer at salvation, but, in fact, they believe, must follow as a second act of grace accompanied by speaking in tongues. Now, to properly address this notion, several New Testament principles must be considered as follows. First of all, does an occurrence of an incident in the book of Acts supply sufficient foundation upon which to form a doctrine? Now, if you wonder what I mean by that, read the introduction to the book of Acts, and uh, there you can get an overview of exactly what I mean when I ask that question. Secondly, can salvation take a place apart from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? 1 Corinthians 12.13 says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. Romans 8.9 also says, this. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. These passages confirm that salvation in Christ is impossible without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit facilitated by being baptized by the same as an integral part of the process of being saved. And moreover, speaking in tongues is never taught in any of the epistles as an indicator of the presence or filling of the Holy Spirit. Everything stated or implied about speaking in tongues is to be found in the passages that I'm going to list for you right now. Those passages would be Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 25, Acts chapter 10, verses 24 to 48, 
1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and also 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Those passages give us every occurrence of speaking in tongues, either stated or implied in the New Testament. In order to understand the issue, each passage must be fully understood in its proper context. Now, um, if you're listening and not looking as uh, I'm reading, then I will say that I have a link to each one of those passages on this page in BibleTrack.org. Then we have another incident in Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 20. Here we find that the sons of Siva bite off more than they can chew. Verse 11, And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought into the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took them to call over them, which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of Siva, a Jew, and a chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it fifty thousand pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Well, a lot of miracles are taking place as a result of Paul's ministry there. Unfortunately, there's a thriving business today based upon verse 12, the sale by charlatans of prayer cloths designed to bring special miracles and healings to the purchasers. There's no doctrinal basis for this deceitful practice. However, the miracles centered around Paul's ministry here are impressive to all, everybody around Ephesus. Subsequently, some Jewish sons of the local synagogue priests decide to trail on the coattails of Paul's success by casting out demons through the power of Jesus Christ. One problem, though, they themselves showed no signs whatsoever of having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ themselves. So when they tried, verse 15 says that the evil spirit spoke back to them, saying, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are ye? The man in whom the evil spirit resided leaped on them and overtook them. Note, only a fireman should attempt to put out a multi-alarm fire. Notice that the seven sons were left naked and wounded. you got to love this story. Big things took place in Ephesus. Verses 17 to 20 tell us that the word of God prevailed and many forsook their practices of witchcraft. But in chapter 19, verses 21 to 41, we see that Paul interferes with the local economy. Verse 21. After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. Then he sent into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a season. At the same time, there arose no small stir about that way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen whom he called together with the workmen of the like occupation, and said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, ye see and hear 
that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands, so that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. And when they heard these things, they were full of wrath, and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And the whole city was filled with confusion. And having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. And when Paul would have entered in into the people, the disciples suffered him not. And certain of the chief of Asia, which were his friends, sent unto him, desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander beckoned with a hand, and would have made his defense unto the people. But when they knew that he was a Jew, all with one voice about the space of two hours cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, Ye men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not how the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana, and of the image which fell down from Jupiter? Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, ye ought to be quiet, and to do nothing rashly. For ye have brought hither these men, which are neither robbers of churches, nor yet blasphemers of your goddess, Wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have a matter against any man, the law is open, and there are deputies, let them implead one another. But if ye inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in lawful assembly. For we are in danger to be called in question for this day's uproar, there being no cause whereby we may give an account of this concourse. And when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly." Now, in verse 22, we see that Paul stayed in Asia for a while, but he sent Timothy and Erastus on to Macedonia. Paul makes reference to the anticipated arrival of Timothy to Corinth over in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 10. So here's the deal. Paul was preaching in Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey, and many folks got saved there. Notice the reference to Christianity in verse 23 when it says, "...and the same time there arose no small stir about that way. Well, of course, those who received Christ were opposed to pagan temples and idol worship. Well, so were the Jews. But the text would indicate that for the sake of the economy, they turned a blind eye to this idol worship. You see, this temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was huge, 33% larger than a football field, and it included this giant statue identified as Diana that they claimed fell from the sky. Since the tourist trade was an important part of the economy in Ephesus, these same tourists bought souvenir statues made by the local silversmiths. Well, these silversmiths are the guys who panicked when they saw so many people around them getting saved and forsaking idol worship. The meeting started at one place. The people were worked into a frenzy and the meeting moved to the open theater, which seated about 24,000 people. When Alexander stood up to represent the Jews, we get the sense that the Jews didn't want to rock the boat. The people attempt to shut him down for two hours by crying out in unison, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. 
A city official finally is able to calm the crowd so Alexander can speak. If Rome hears about riots in Ephesus, who knows what might happen? He calms the uh, people down by pointing out that Paul and company were, as the King James states, neither robbers of churches nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. Now, the actual Greek word for churches there is hierosolus, which means actually temple desecrators. Uh, so this served to appease the people by, in their minds, diminishing the threat to the economy. And the local official convinces the people to go home before things get out of hand. Paul then realizes that it might be time to leave, and he does. This just goes to show you that people compromise principles for money and security, as had these local Jewish officials and the population there. And then Paul heads for Macedonia and Greece in Acts chapter 20, uh, verse 1. And after the uproar was ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them and departed for to go into Macedonia. And when he had gone over those parts and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece and there abode three months. And when the Jews laid wait for him as he was about to sail into Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia. And there accompanied him into Asia, Sopater of Berea and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe and Timothy, and of Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus. These going before tarried for us at Troas. And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and came unto them to Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. So Paul heads through Macedonia, which is modern-day Albania, and ends up in Greece. After three months, the Jews became agitated against him once again, and they plotted to kill him. Paul took a detour rather than heading directly back to Syria because of the threat. So it's back up through Macedonia and east to Philippi, from which they sailed back towards Syria. Well, we see that Paul had some disciples as travel companions in verse 4. You'll notice from Luke's personal pronoun, we, in verse 6, that he, obviously, was traveling along with Paul at this point in time. In Acts chapter 20, verses 7 through 16, uh, we find an account of a guy that falls out of a third-story window. Verse 7, At one of the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. And there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. And there sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus, being fallen into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. And Paul went down and fell on him, and embracing him, said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. When he therefore was come up again, and broken bread, and eaten, and talked a long while, even till break of day, so he departed. And they brought the young man alive, and were not a little comforted. And we went before the ship, and sailed unto Assos, there intending to take in Paul, for so had he appointed, minding himself to go afoot. And when he met with us at Assos, we took him in, and came to Mytilene. And we sailed thence, and came the next day over against Chios. And the next day we arrived at Samos, and tarried at Tragilium. And the next day we came to Miletus. For Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus, because he would not spend the time in Asia, 
for he hasted, if it were possible for him, to be at Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. So on his way back, Paul stops for seven days in Troas. After supper, he begins preaching. A guy named Eutychus was sitting in the window on the third floor, and he falls asleep and tumbles three stories. Luke declares that he was taken up dead in verse 9. Paul arrives on the scene and declares that his life is in him. This passage has provided me much comfort in my preaching ministry. I mean, let's face it, if Paul couldn't keep everybody awake, how can I be expected to do so? Paul then continues his journey. His goal is to reach Jerusalem by the festival of Pentecost. Watch it, Paul. Jerusalem may not be a very friendly environment. In Acts chapter 20, beginning with verse 17, Paul addresses the elders in Ephesus, verse 17. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, You know, from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews." And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly, and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit into Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto me, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flocks over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel." Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities, and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak, and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. And they all wept sore, and fell on Paul's neck, and kissed him. Souring most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. And they accompanied him unto the ship. Well, in this passage, Paul's headed for Jerusalem, but before he leaves Ephesus, he calls all the elders together that he might address them. One church I attended many, many years ago referred to the Acts 20:20 20, 20 passage here as the Acts 20:20 20, 20 vision. 
If you read it along with verse 21, you'll see what they mean. That's the 2020 vision. Get it? Pun intended. Paul's pretty sure that his trip to Jerusalem will be something less than enjoyable. Look at verses 23 and 24. It says, Save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me, but none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Well, Paul knows that he'll be in prison and afflicted in Jerusalem. But he expresses in verse 24 that it just doesn't matter. It's necessary, as he says, to finish my course with joy. It's interesting to compare this with Paul's writing in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, when he writes there, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Paul's convinced he must go to Jerusalem in order to finish his course. He tells them that they'll not see him again after this day, and he warns them to avoid false teachers, and then it's off to Jerusalem. His arrival there is recorded beginning in Acts chapter 21, verse 15. Now, I want you to pay close attention to how carefully worded Paul's statement is in verse 21 when he speaks of the salvation process. There he specifies, and I quote, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Many people today incorrectly teach the doctrine of repentance. The Old Testament Hebrew word generally translated repentance is nakam, often associated with sorrow. The New Testament Greek word metanoia holds no connotation as such. It literally is defined as to change one's mind or attitude. That's why Paul is very careful here to specify repentance toward God. Salvation requires repentance, which is for one to turn to God. Those teachers today who have incorrectly defined repentance as being sorry for one's sins, well, they tend to present a confusing salvation invitation. Now, we do see in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, that godly sorrow and repentance are two separate concepts. Uh, Paul's salvation message was simply twofold. Repentance toward God is step one, and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, that is step two. In understanding the process of salvation, it's important to recognize that the Holy Spirit incorporates both repentance and faith into one seamless process. Paul presents the salvation concept in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 to 21. You might want to take a look at that because there I've laid it out in my notes very clearly. You can see the distinction that I'm making here. Read the notes that I've provided there and, and try to very carefully analyze it to understand that repentance and faith are not to be separated. They go hand in hand. The Holy Spirit provides both repentance and faith, in the salvation experience. In other words, you can't have one without the other. Salvation is the supernatural act of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, and that provides us with the complete package necessary for eternal life, and that package consists of repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, let me make a doctrinal note here about the elders, bishops, and pastors that we find in Scripture, because in this chapter, from a technical perspective, this chapter reinforces a doctrine about terminology used with regard to the pastoral ministry. In verse 17, the men who are called together are referred to as elders. The Greek word there for elder is presbyteros. In verse 28, Paul refers to them as overseers. Now, the Greek word for overseer is episkopos. It's used seven times in the New Testament, and it's translated bishop in the other six occurrences. That means that these elders are also referred to as bishops, same men, same people. There's no distinction in Scripture between elders and bishops. But wait, there's more. Verse 28 also contains the Greek verb poimeno. That's translated feed in that verse. The definition of the word is to tend to a flock as a shepherd. Now, it just so happens that the noun form of that very same word poimeno is poimain. And it's translated shepherd in every scriptural occurrence in the New Testament except for one. And that's Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 where there it's translated pastor. In fact, the word pastor is only once found in the New Testament and eight times in the Old Testament, and it always refers to the shepherds. It's also worth noting that Peter used the same three Greek words in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, the only difference being that he uses the verb form episkopeo, translated there, oversight, instead of the noun form of the same word, same root word, episkopos. So here's the conclusion to all of that. There is no distinction between a pastor, a bishop, or an elder in the Scripture. Functionally, they are identical. They all refer to the exact same office. Now, some have suggested that the three words speak to different aspects of the pastoral ministry. Well, perhaps, but it's pretty difficult to see the distinction. They're actually all scriptural terms designated for those who lead believers in the local church. Now, I've written an article entitled, well, obviously, Pastors, Elders, and Bishops. And you can find it under the topic section of BibleTrack.org or at the bottom of the written notes for today's reading. You can just click on that link to get a comprehensive overview of this doctrine of pastors, elders, and bishops. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton.